0: by looking at what is happening more than half a tree is spread out in the soil under your feet penetrate quietly as the earthworm that blows no trumpet fight persistently as the creeper that brings down the tree spread like the squash plant that overruns the garden Gnaw in the dark and use the sun to make sugar. Weave real connections. Create real nodes. Build real houses. Live a life you can endure. Make love that is loving. Keep tangling and interweaving and taking more in. A thicket and bramble wilderness to the outside but to us interconnected with rabbit runs and burrows and layers. Live as if you like yourself and it may happen. Reach out, keep reaching out, keep bringing in. This is how we are going to live for a long time, not always. For every gardener knows that after the digging, after the planting, After the long season of tending and growth, the harvest comes. I invite you now to join, I think, our wonderful guests, the DC Labor Chorus, in our opening song, a song of the harvest coming soon. To start my morning. thank you. Welcome to the Washington Ethical Society. I am Amanda Poppy my pronouns are she her and hers. I'm privileged to serve as the senior leader here and I am so glad that you are with us this morning. whether you are here in the room or whether you are joining us on Facebook or online, we are glad you're here. Visitors and guests, we hope that you got a blue name tag so that we can particularly welcome you and answer any questions that you might have. We do really love talking about what we have found here, but we are most interested in what you are looking for. We hope you'll join us after the platform service for coffee and cookies in the social hall. You might uh, keep an eye out for Maceo, our membership coordinator, who's waving in the back. He's especially eager to meet new folks, um, as are all of us. We also hope that you'll consider sharing your email with us in the gold sheet which is found in your um, at the welcome table and you can drop that in the collection basket when it passes later in the platform service I want to invite you to check in on social media if you like tell your friends that you're here and then put your phone on silent so that you can be fully present with us this morning and now I'd like to invite Peter Bishop to come forward to light our community candle This month, as we explore the theme of integrity, I invited people at West to nominate others whom they saw living lives of integrity, living lives that corresponded with their values and with authenticity. And the folks who um, nominated Peter talked about his social justice work with Unitarian Universalists for Social Justice. They talked about the fact that he has been arrested for DC voting rights and, and protested and been out there in the city, um, and they also talked about the freedom with which he dances on Sunday morning, the way that he lives authentically with his body, and how he expresses it in the world. And so I want to honor Peter um, with this candle lighting and invite him to share our statement of purpose this morning, and then we'll light our candle together.
1: Thank you, Amanda. Uh, The Washington Ethical Society is a humanistic congregation that affirms the worth of every person. We strive through our relationships to elicit the best in the human spirit. With faith in human goodness, we appreciate each person's unique capacities. We joyfully celebrate together and support each other throughout life. We nurture a sense of reverence and responsibility for each other and the earth. We invite you to join our community of children and adults as we work for our world where love and justice cross all borders.
0: Thank you so much, Peter. As Peter lights our community candle, I invite you to join in our candle lighting words. May we kindle within us the warmth of compassion, the light of understanding, and the fire of commitment to build a brighter future for all. Thank you, Peter. Shout out to Jen on the AV team, who has moved the words on that candle lighting so we can read it while we're standing up here. It's the little things that make a difference in the community. Each week we ring a chime in solidarity with people around the world. Today as we consider D.C. home rule and the reality of taxation without representation, I hold in my heart all those around the world who are disenfranchised, who do not have a voice or a vote, internationally and in our own country. As we listen to the chime, let us remember our connection to each other and to the world around us. Let us hold in our hearts all that hurts in the world. And let us commit ourselves to all that calls for our work and our love. I invite you into a time of deeper meditation. Settle yourself in your seat, your feet perhaps on the floor so you can feel the ground beneath you or in whatever way is most comfortable for your body. You might close your eyes or soften your gaze. Take a breath with me. take another breath or two feeling the air fill up your lungs giving life and as you breathe out letting it go as you breathe in fill yourself with peace as you breathe out Send that peace where it is needed. As you breathe in, fill yourself with love and send it out where it is needed. Fill yourself with justice. Send it out where it is needed. With each breath, we fill our bodies with air and life. With each breath, we send it out where it is needed.
1: Peace, alam, shalom. For peace, Sallam Shalom, we will work for peace, Shalom Shalom, we will work for peace. In Jerusalem, peace, shalom, shalom. In Aleppo, peace, shalom, shalom. In Baltimore, peace, shalom, shalom. In Ferguson, peace, shalom, shalom. In Charlottesville.
0: Thank you so much to DC Labor Chorus. Many West folks may know, but perhaps not all of you, that um, we are so proud and pleased to be able to host DC Labor Chorus for their rehearsals here at West and to share our space with them. And we love when they come and sing for us and with us, um, really with us on a Sunday morning and invite us into the music and the justice space that they create. Um, So we're glad to have you with us all the time. I am glad to be with you this morning, and <clears throat> so I've never been really good at, at dissembling. I, I feel I have to be transparent, so I'm going to share with you that the platform I'm giving today is one that I wrote in and delivered in 2011. <clears throat> and I feel um, a, a mixture of things about that. I feel excited that um, I woke up this morning and just printed it. Um, <laughs> I feel interested because in 2011, I was working still from um, fully manuscripted platforms rather than from notes, and so it's been really fascinating to go back and kind of remember a different way of speaking and being, and I'll be so curious to hear how folks experience that. And then I feel really kind of bummed and angry um, because Everything I said in 2011 about DC home rule and taxation without representation is the same today. I didn't really have to change anything in this platform. We haven't particularly made significant strides in DC home rule and and that's frustrating for me and frustrating more importantly for all of the folks in DC who for many generations have not had uh, a vote in Congress um, who <clears throat> have not had representation, who have not had full authority over their budget and therefore the programs that they can fund, and who have even had programs that, um, now, you know, forget the manuscript. Anyway, <clears throat> we're going to hear more about that. It makes me grumpy. So I feel a little grumpy about that. I also feel, as you know, very honored to be, um, last week the officiant referred to me as the Warm Up Act for Eleanor Holmes Norton, um, who will be with us at 11.30 and who has been working tirelessly um, for many years um, for a variety of civil rights um, advances, but in particular for the people of DC and for representation uh, in Congress and Home Rule and statehood and any of the many ways that might be um, a way to move forward um, for the citizens of DC. when I wrote this platform in, in 2011, we were um, on the edge, on the brink of a potential government shutdown and had been listening to debate by public servants and information that turned out to be sort of less factual than expected and sort of huge <laughs> debates about our national budget. Um, and we were in some amount of frustration with our public um, elected officials. Little did we know. Of course, that is if we had elected officials with a vote in Congress. Those of us who live in Maryland and in Virginia are able to feel righteous indignation toward the folks that we did or didn't vote for to represent us, the ones who were elected to represent our interests. Those of us who live in D.C., that takes righteous indignation to a whole new level. Originally, I coincided this platform address um, with Tax Day on April 15th. One of the rallying cries of the D.C. voting rights movement has been taxation without representation. In fact, as you surely know, it's printed right on our license plates here in the district. But suddenly, sort of paying taxes seems like a relatively minor thing when we look at all that happens because of D.C.'s lack of voting representation and weak home rule. I suspect that I don't need to convince most of you, there's a little bit of preaching to the choir or the chorus, that D.C.'s lack of elected representation on the federal level is a shame, and I use that word intentionally. In fact, polling has indicated that the majority of Americans across the country support voting rights in D.C. if they know that D.C. doesn't have voting rights, which most of them do not. We in the capital area tend to be more aware and I suspect that most of us not only know about DC's lack of congressional voting representation but also want to change that. If you are like me though, you are not always sure exactly what it would entail to change that. Or you can't pull out great arguments beyond, well that seems wrong. (laughs) Or you wish you had a better grounding maybe in the ethical reasons or perhaps, even the religious reasons, I would say, that this issue could be our issue here in this community, and indeed has been. So I'm hoping this morning to provide a little bit more of that background for you. Let me start with some history. I am indebted for this history to a great document that was created by DC Vote and by the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, and to a paper that's titled, Seat of Democracy or Home of Hypocrisy by Neil Schaefer, for much of what I'll share this morning. So the District of Columbia, as you may or may not know, was incorporated in 1791 with the idea that it was safer to have a federal government that wasn't located within a particular state and therefore favorable in some way potentially to that state's interests. That's why a separate entity was created to house the federal government. This didn't mean, of course, that the individuals living in the new district necessarily couldn't vote. Australia actually has a similar situation with what's called the Australian Capital Territory and its residents have full federal representation. So did the residents of the District of Columbia in the beginning. In 1801 though, two years later if you're tracking, Congress passed the Organic Acts which took away representation from residents of the district, not the kind of organic that we flock to at Whole Foods, obviously. They still had some form of home rule, however, electing their own officials and government until 1874, when Congress took over total control of DC's affairs and stripped it of its power. District residents didn't get the right to vote for President of the United States until 1961. Can you believe that? Yes, of course you can. And of course, they still don't have voting representation in Congress. We do have a long-serving delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, whom we're delighted to have with us later this morning, who has given permission to speak on the House floor, as you might well know, having heard some of her speeches, but who cannot vote. Beyond representation in Congress, DC has had to fight for its right just to make its own decisions, a right that is not fully granted at this time, by any means. The Home Rule Charter of of 1973 gave much authority to the city, but it is always pending congressional oversight. D.C. is governed, as you surely know, by a mayor and a city council, but all of their decisions may be overturned, and Congress has to approve D.C.'s budget, much of which is made up of local tax dollars. This kind of congressional oversight means that individual congresspeople have historically used D.C. as a kind of battleground, playing to their bases or just playing out their own agendas on the little piece of land where they work. We'll talk in a little bit about what that's meant for the district, um, uh, sort of historically, but these events have not been unique to, to particular moments in time. Congressional restrictions on D.C. have run the gamut from keeping us from controlling gun sales to excluding us from programs to help at-risk youth. Um, last In 2010, when uh, D.C. became the most southernmost jurisdiction to legalize same-sex wedding, that was a, a subject to overturn by Congress until it became legal throughout the country. The same thing goes for D.C.'s needle exchange program, which is particularly important in a city with one of the highest HIV AIDS rates in the country. I wonder though, what lies even deeper than these particular policy issues. What does it do to a people's psyche to be disenfranchised for so long? Reverend Mark Schaefer, no relationship and different spelling from the Schaefer who wrote that article, Reverend Mark Schaefer is a (coughs) was a Methodist chaplain at American University and a longtime advocate for D.C. voting rights. And he addressed a question in a different paper that he wrote in 2002, entitled Christian Ethics and Voting Rights for the District of Columbia. It has been the experience of disenfranchised communities, he wrote, that the effects of that disenfranchisement go far beyond those outlined in the laws that exclude them. In the District of Columbia, 200 years of disenfranchisement has had a profound effect on the social and political culture of the city. Generations of children have been raised under the notion that their input into running their own lives is irrelevant. Indeed, it is not uncommon to find in the voting rights movement a high proportion of non-native Washingtonians. Natives of the District of Columbia have become accustomed to the lack of political power as their lot. The experience of the community makes it clear. The injuries of disenfranchisement are not simply that citizens are not allowed a voice. They are injured in ways that go far beyond the political sphere, go to their very self-esteem and human dignity. The wrongs of disenfranchisement penetrate all areas of life. It's impossible for me not to hear these words of Reverend Schaefer and consider the relationship of voting rights disenfranchisement in the district to racism. First of all, simply because we're talking about a community, a city um, who has been regularly and legally disenfranchised in this country sounds an awful lot like the African-American experience writ large in America, routine disenfranchisement from voting. Second, because my guess is that the lack of voting rights disproportionately affects D.C.'s black families, many of whom are the multi-generational D.C. residents that Reverend Schaefer is talking about. While among the white D.C. community, particularly the white upper-middle class kind of yuppie-ish D.C. community, of which I personally consider myself a member, (laughs) saying that you've lived in D.C. for more than five years gets a response of, oh, you're almost a local, (laughs) right? Oh, a local. it stands to reasons that populations who practice more mobility because of higher income levels and a lack of family rootedness might be annoyed that they don't have a vote for the period of time during which they live in the district but realize that they could rectify the situation by moving to Maryland or to Virginia or back home to Ohio or to Florida or any other state. Third, I see the tie between DC's disenfranchisement and the historic disenfranchisement of black Americans because it is a commonly accepted fact, particularly within D.C.'s African-American community, that the district's lack of voting representation is linked to its status since about 1950 as a majority black city. In that paper that I cited earlier, the first Schaefer, Seat of Democracy or Home of Hypocrisy, which is subtitled The Role of Racism in the Struggle for Voting Rights in the District of Columbia, Nell Schaefer begins her research with the location of the federal government in D.C. when the city was already 30% black, the majority of those free blacks. Leading up to the Civil War, free blacks were subject to restrictive codes that governed where they went, how late they stayed out, and whether they could swear in public. They could not. During the Civil War, and of course particularly after the District Emancipation Act of 1862, which freed enslaved people within the district, African Americans came to the city in droves. They immediately began working to get the right to vote, and despite strong opposition locally from white people, Congress approved that right in 1867. As Schaefer writes, within less than a year of being granted voting rights, black men accounted for over 45, of course it was men only at that point, (coughs) accounted for over 45% of the total registered voters in the district. Blacks were elected to the city council which actually passed an anti-discrimination bill desegregating public spaces in 1869. Think about that, 1869, desegregating public spaces in DC during those reconstruction years. Isn't it a funny coincidence that two years later, in 1871, Congress passed the first bill stripping DC of much of its home rule authority? It's not a coincidence. This bill created a territorial government, which actually turned out to be a bit of a disaster uh, logistically, and was quickly followed by the bill we mentioned earlier, the 1874 bill that turned complete control of the city over to Congress. Actually, no one thought it was a coincidence, not even then. Politicians at the time, national politicians, were quite happy to make clear why they had taken over control of the district. And I want to apologize for the... Um, or warn you about the language in this this statement, um, which was from Senator John Tyler Morgan of Alabama. Uh, Schaefer quotes Senator Morgan of Alabama, again this is in the 1870s, um, uh, in her paper. It was necessary to burn down the barn to get rid of the rats. The rats being, these are Senator Morgan's words the rats being the Negro population and the barn being the government of the District of Columbia. helpful to spell out your racism so fully. Now the historical fact is simply this, Senator Morgan went on, that the Negroes came into this district from Virginia and Maryland and from other places. They came in here and they took possession of a certain part of the political power of this district. And there but was but one way to get out, so Congress thought, so this able committee thought. And that was to deny the right of suffrage entirely to every human being in the district and have every office here controlled by appointment instead of by election in order to get rid of this load of Negro suffrage that was flooded in upon them." End quote. Over the next almost 100 years, DC's fate was in the hands of Congress and often the least able members of Congress. They were, of course, all white, mostly segregationists. Schaefer quotes historians Harry Jaffe and Tom Sherwood, who wrote, the city was under direct control of committees that were the least prestigious in the Congress. They were a proving ground for junior members or a dumping ground for embarrassing ones. Blacks in Washington had endured slavery, the restrictive black codes of the 1830s, and the riots of 1919, but Congress made the racism institutional, end quote. Attempts to push for home rule in the 1940s were met with speeches nearly as ugly as those given in the 1870s, warning that the district's blacks, the children of the alley, as described by one white D.C. resident who opposed home rule at the time, would ruin the city. The 1960s saw advances for African American enfranchisement and civil rights nationally and, again, not coincidentally, advances for D.C. voting rights just at the same time with a bill allowing D.C. residents to vote for president in 1961. Although arguments against Home Rule were getting a little bit more veiled, Schaefer cites a 1965 national poll on district voting rights in which 70 percent, this is in the national poll, of those opposed to Home Rule responded with a phrase, there are too many Negroes, they would take over. In 1967, D.C. won the right to a city council and a mayor of its own election. But white supporters of home rule campaigned to have the majority of the council and the mayor be white, so as not to too much disturb Congress. D.C. said no. The district has never been served by a white mayor. In 1974, D.C. received the limited form of home rule that it currently has, some control of local decisions, but still with final authority, veto power, and budget approval resting with Congress. DC statehood actually became a possibility for a little while in the 1990s. It kind of comes up again and again, and we've seen a resurgence in the last couple of years as we've explored different possibilities. Congress examined the issue in the 90s. DC, as we know, was not granted statehood, but the, from my perspective, the reasons for that are even more telling than the outcome. Schaefer writes, again in that paper, according to a congressional index compiled by the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, statehood was the most racially divisive issue in Congress in 1993. 93, that's where we are. The Congressional Black Caucus, he went on, emerged as statehood's strongest proponent, with 97% of its members voting in favor of the act. Only 64% of the next most liberal contingent in Congress white non-Southern liberals approved of statehood. 64% of, yeah, you got it. District of Columbia statehood was the most racially divisive issue examined by the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, dividing blacks and whites more than issues including gays in the military, a constitutional amendment to balance the budget, violence against women, and racial discrimination in capital offenses. Essentially, Congress divided almost completely in terms of um, voting rights and enfranchisement in D.C. along racial lines. There are, of of course, plenty of arguments against D.C. statehood and D.C. home rule and voting rights in general that one hears. These days, you are unlikely to hear a senator say that he opposes D.C. statehood with such uh, openly vitriolic language as we have had in past years, though. I don't know, this was written in 2011. You frequently might hear cited D.C.'s sometimes challenging record of corruption and unbalanced budgets, although interestingly I do not hear Congress calling for the repeal of voting rights to the many states with unbalanced budgets or to those states with corruption, and in fact D.C. has not had unbalanced budgets, it has quite a, a rainy day fund in fact at this time. The legacy of racism in DC's history is difficult to ignore, and we would be naive to think that it had suddenly disappeared simply because it has gone underground. As Schaefer asks at the conclusion of her paper, who in particular do Congress's present policies toward the district affect? Which groups do and do not hold political and social power in our country? Why has Congress neglected for so long to address such a clear instance of a lack of democracy? End quote. I hope you have caught just a little bit of righteous indignation by hearing simply the facts of what has happened for the district over time. If not, let me add a few more logs to the fire. The federal government shutdown in past years has sometimes meant the end of trash pickup in D.C. D.C. has to specifically negotiate to ensure that basic city services continue when the federal government shuts down and there have been shutdowns in which trash pickup has not happened and other city services were completely shut down, leaving D.C. residents in a state of emergency. D.C. libraries have sometimes been closed during federal shutdowns and there have been questions about whether the schools would stay open to serve the children of D.C. D.C., as I mentioned, has been used as a political pawn. In 2011, there was a deeply bizarre give and take over um, D.C. in order to balance our $4 trillion federal budget. You know, every once in a while at West when we talk about our budget, people will say things like, you know, I could donate pens and then that would help, right? You know, it's... It's understandable to think sometimes about the small line items when you're looking at a large budget, but this truly goes beyond that. The $4 trillion federal budget was balanced through a deal that included D.C. losing the right to use local money to provide abortions to low-income women in the district. That program that was axed in the deal to balance the budget costs $90,000 a year. It's hardly likely to be the key to a balanced federal budget. It is only another instance of D.C. as a pawn. Outrageous might be another word. Ridiculous, outrageous, wrong. D.C.'s city council members and mayor thought so, That led off a series of arrests, including our own Peter Bishop and Joe London and myself as well at about eight months pregnant. That was an interesting experience. Over time, DC residents have again and again, actually, and Maceo, I think, was also arrested for DC voting rights around that time. We didn't know each other then, but fighting the fight over time people have been fighting that fight in different ways arguing for dc statehood or for any number of other solutions to bring enfranchisement what i'm wondering is why aren't we out in the streets all the time waving dc flags and shouting I think the answer can be found in that idea about what happens to your psyche when you have been disenfranchised for hundreds of years. People feel tired. They think perhaps voting rights might be nice, but they are unlikely. And since they don't have representation in Congress, D.C. residents also don't have a lot of political clout to make voting rights happen. There are a couple of ways to respond to this. All of them, I think, provide grounding for the argument that this fight is a religious and ethical fight, a fight that this community and other religious communities have taken up and moved forward. I think first it's important to know, and those of you who live in Maryland and Virginia, please perk up your ears, DC cannot fight this fight alone. We are located here just a few blocks from Maryland and so the congregation has sometimes grappled with the question of where our justice work should be. Whether we should work in Montgomery County or in Prince George's County where we have folks that live or whether we should work here in D.C. where we also have members of the congregation who live. What I want to say today I think is that no matter where you make your home, If when you say, I'm going into the city, you mean I'm going into the district, if the district is your city, then DC's fight is your fight. We all have different reasons for choosing where we actually tuck ourselves into bed at night or where we're able to afford to tuck ourselves into bed at night. But as a people who gather at a congregation that stands proudly in the district, we do have a role to play in the district's battles. In fact, the West members who lay the foundation for this building in 1964 made a conscious decision not to move the society into Maryland, but to stay in the district. The least we can do is to honor them with our care for the city that hosts us. And part of our call, I think, is to make sure that our friends and relatives who live in other parts of the country know about D.C.'s plight as well. That they have an awareness that the residents of D.C. are disenfranchised and without the authority to make decisions about their very own tax dollars. There's another reason why I think this issue belongs to us, a reason that's about hope and faith as much as it is about policy. Religious congregations and movements exist for many reasons, to provide community, to work for justice, to accompany people through struggles of joy and life. They also exist to give people a sense of what is possible, a shining maybe when the world looks a lot like yes or no. Some religious traditions hold that that maybe is in another realm, But many are like ours, where whether or not there is another realm, there is also a world we might create here, one that does not exist yet, but that could be. Congregations like ours create that could be together. We believe in the seemingly impossible. D.C. is not going to win voting representation or statehood this year. It is not likely to win it during this particular political moment nationally. And I think it would be easy to throw up our hands and to say we don't know if we'll ever win it and so we aren't going to spend time on it or worry about it because who knows whether we'll ever get there. I do believe that we need practically and strategically to keep the pressure on elected officials from throughout the country so that this stays front and center, and organizations like DC Vote do just that. Each time a new Congress comes in, and we saw it in, um, in the last uh, Congressional election nationally, new Congress members are invited to support DC statehood as they come in and fill their positions. But I think it is also important for us to continue this fight because we are a congregation that believes in the maybe, in the possibly impossible. One of my favorite um, prophets in the Hebrew Bible, I know you all have a favorite prophet in the Hebrew Bible just like me. One of my favorites is Isaiah. Isaiah is... um, has some beautiful passages in the book of Isaiah. That's where the wolf lying down with the lamb, frequently mistranslated as a lion and a lamb, they actually don't live in the same place, so it's a wolf. (coughs) And it creates the possibility of this beautiful, peaceable kingdom that we might inhabit together. So the passages are lovely and inspiring, and that is not what I love about Isaiah. What I love about Isaiah is actually his call story, the moment when in the story God comes to Isaiah and says, I have a mission for you to be a prophet and um, and here is what it is. Um, you're going to talk to the people and you're going to tell them what they need to do and nobody is going to listen to you. So, great. Get, get started. And Isaiah says, I think something like, that doesn't sound great. Um, and uh, And and God explains it again, no, that's definitely the deal. You're going to talk to the people and and, um, you're going to tell them what they need to do and they're not going to listen. And Isaiah says, okay, I'm on it. Send me, says Isaiah. I love the Isaiah story because it is a story of doing the right thing even when you know you will fail. Even when you are certain it will not work. Believing in the impossible, anyway, or not even believing, but doing the right thing simply because it is right. Now, I will be honest. I would like us to have more success than Isaiah did. There was a lot of wandering around that Isaiah did not manage to uh, to. Um, what's the word? Keep from happening. There's another word for that. You know, prevent. Yeah, prevent to prevent, the people did indeed fall into ruin and were forced into exile. It wasn't a great time. I would like more success than that for us. But I believe there is a need for congregations like Wes, for people belonging to communities like this, whether they live in Maryland or Virginia or here in the district. I believe there is a need for us to keep up the hope the maybe, the possibility. To show up and fight when we are asked to by DC vote or by other organizations that are gathering to make change, that are finding strategic ways and bringing in one more congressperson and one more congressperson, building a national movement that supports voting rights enfranchisement across the country and that will bring DC along with that enfranchisement. There is a need for us to be like Isaiah, saying yes, even though I can share a platform from 2011 and have it still resonate today, to say even so, we know this is a long fight, but it is one worth fighting. Not only for the district residents today, but for the history of district residents for the hundreds of years of racism and disenfranchisement, in their memory, in the memory of all who fought along the way for a little more control and a little more power and a little more home rule, we hold that hope today.
1: You know, I'd like to invite folks to sing along with this song. It's it's called, We Did Not Come This Far To Give Up Now. I appreciate your words, and I think this song may sort of be in the same vein. We need to find hope in these times. And the song goes like this. We did not come this far to give up now. Give that a try. We did Did not come come this far far to give up now. The days of old behind the freedom plow. Days of old we have the freedom. Try that. Days of old we the freedom loud. I have this faith. I have this faith. Deep in my heart somehow. Deep in my heart somehow. We did not come this far to give up now. We did not come this far to give up now. Days of old old behind the freedom freedom line. I have this faith.
0: I have this
1: faith deep in my heart. We did not come. We did not come this far to give up up now. I dreamed I saw Thelma Hopkins last night. I said you died long ago. She said, no, Uh I'm not dead. I came back because I need you to know. I saw Bree Newsome climb up that flagpole. She took that thing down. That slavery flag will not fly. And as long as folks have courage like that, I will never die. Pete Seeger last night, I said you died long ago, then he said, nah, I ain't dead, I came back cause I need you to know, I seen the Puerto Rican people protesting, they held a general strike, they kicked the governor out, imagine that. As long as folks have courage like that, I'll be singing in the crowd. And we did. We did not come. said no I did I came back cuz I need you to know I see a new poor people's campaign
0: more perfect. Thank you so much. This is the time, oh, I'm on. Sorry, Johnny. This is the time in our